Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Librarians with Lattes. I'm your host, Amanda Lau, Outreach and Marketing Librarian here at the University at Albany. Today, I'm joined by Karen Kiorpis, Head of the Preservation Department here at the University Libraries. Welcome, Karen. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. As custom is on our show, we always ask, what are you sipping on today? I am drinking 100% pure water fountain water and a <laughs> reused plastic water bottle. Reusable is the way to go, and I love to hear when our guests are using reusable things. I'm bad, and I go to Starbucks, as a lot of our listeners know, frequently. I tried something new a couple weeks ago, something my sister suggested to me. It's basically a strawberry acai refresher with the lemonade with three scoops of matcha powder in it. It tastes like spring in a cup. Yum. <laughs> is it sweet? It is very sweet. Oh. But the matcha does mellow it out a little bit, but you have to like matcha, I feel, to like this drink. So if you're not a matcha person, I don't recommend, but if you like matcha, you should try it. Okay. No berries. So if you start talking really <laughs> fast, we know it's a, sugar bu- it's a sugar buzz. It is a sugar buzz, but that's just me naturally, too. So. <laughs> All right, so on today's episode, we will be discussing the wonderful world of preservation. And a lot of people might not know what that is. So, Karen, would you mind telling us what preservation exactly is? Well, here in the university libraries, preservation is sort of a big, big word that encompasses a whole range of activities that helps us to keep our collections available for as long as they're needed. So those activities could include big ideas like making sure that the temperature and humidity are set at the right points so it's not too wet and it's not too warm. It may deal with pests and mold issues if there are problems. It can deal with security because we don't want to lose collections. And it can include other things like emergency response if there's flooding, preventing disasters from happening, making sure we have a plan And at the remedial end, rather than the preventive end, at the remedial end, it can include creating enclosures, doing repair work, reformatting materials, putting things into enclosures to protect them, a whole range of activities. So that's a very wide umbrella of things. (laughs) I can wear a lot of hats. (laughs) So you kind of touched on some of this with just the things that you cover, but why is preservation so important in the long run for an institution like ours to have? Well, preservation for any organization, whether it's a museum or a library or an archive, for any cultural organization, really has to be tied into the mission of the organization. So preservation program in any, in any organization such as that really has to be tied into what you're, you're promising to do, what you're trying to accomplish. So we know that public libraries, for example, their materials get a lot of heavy use, a lot of heavy circulation. So trying to keep things in circulation for as long as possible might be, you know, preservation for them. At archives, it might have to do with people trying to have access to primary materials all the time. So they're going to try to protect providing copies. And they also do a lot of exhibit work. So in an institution such as ours, where we've got scholars and researchers And by extension, you know, really the public at large, the world, we are trying to make sure that we keep the information available sort of as a society makes things true so that history isn't rewritten in terms of what's happening currently. 
we we want people in 2019 to be able to study books that were published 150 years ago to get a sense of what thinking was like then. I think it really democratizes our society. Sure. Just off the cuff as an interesting factoid, what is the oldest book in our collection that you've had your hands on for preservation that you can recall? Oh, well, we have a collection of books in our special collections and archives, several hundred, I think there's like three or four hundred of them. They were, they've been cataloged only in the last 10 or 15 years. Sure. So they're from the 1500s, oh, wow. mostly 1600s. They are almost all of them bound in parchment or in vellum. That's cool. And we've got a former dean of libraries who now volunteers in my department. She makes beautiful phase boxes or, uh, well, they're called clamshell boxes for them. Mm -hmm. uh, very precise work. These materials in a, an intellectual sense, in terms of their intellectual value, is really not that high, but they're beautiful objects of study. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So we mentioned all these things that you do, and it seems like there's a lot that goes into this. How big is your department? How many people are working on these things? Well, there's three full-time people in my department. So myself, our collections conservator, Ann Kearney, and we have a clerk, Mary Howard. And she's not just a clerk. She does everything including repair work as needed. She's proven herself very talented at the bench. And how much time does it take on average to go through one piece of material to preserve? Depending on, I'm guessing there are a lot of factors for this. Yeah, well, it, it can vary tremendously depending not only on the condition of the item, but also whether or not it's been used. So, for example, if materials are pulled while stacks, staff are doing maintenance and they find a damaged book, but we discover it hasn't circulated in 20 years, we're going to do the minimum and put it back. So it's not going to really change much if it's just sort of sitting on the shelf. But if we get something that's actively circulated, it becomes more of a priority and we may want to do more to to prevent loss of the pages or of the covers or, or the plates or, the, of course, the information. The works come to us from many different ways, but most of the books come from circulation. So we sort them out and we decide what we are going to send to a commercial binder, and that's usually because the text block is actually broken oh, and Jesus, needs to be yeah. fixed. If it could be something we can repair in-house, and that, that's a broad range. We, we do have three full-time staff, but we right now have five students working in the department who do the majority of the basic repair work. So something may need to be pamphlet-bound. It could be a brittle pamphlet we decide to make a copy of as well. Sure. Broken spines, they're often the source of most of the damage because they're exposed and they're where people grab things with their little finger and they pull them off the shelf and they tear. Covers become loose. Sometimes publishers don't do a very good job of making books, and they start to fall apart soon after somebody, you know, the first couple of uses, and we, we, we find we have to do repair work. So we, we have the stuff we can do in-house, and that's almost all of it, I could say, is cost-effective and quick. So usually less than 45 minutes. Oh, that's not 
that's not bad. And then Ann Kearney at the high end will do those things that we really can't send out. The commercial binder doesn't want anything to do with it. It's a little more difficult and she has the skills and she'll do that in-house and that can be in excess of two hours. Special collections materials can take longer. And then we have actually a third place that we put things and that's the stuff we can't fix. So that's like, we'll get a book that doesn't have any pages in between because somebody's torn them all out. Or somebody's vandalized a book heavily by writing in the margins or making comments or heavy, heavy highlighting. Brittle books, paper that's started to deteriorate, that's become yellow, and we can't send it to a binder. Even if it doesn't look that bad, if they put it in a machine, it's just going to bust. So that stuff, we work with our subject specialists here in the libraries, and they make the decision about whether they want to keep a title in-house or withdraw it and have the patron perhaps get it through ILL. Now, say there, I, I know this happens with art books quite a bit. There will be people who take the X-Acto knives to them and take out uh, images. But other than that, the book is fine. Is there any way or are there times that we say, hey, we can replace this page somehow and fix it? Sure. We also do that with, with journal titles. Sometimes people would just tear out the whole article from a bound journal. So if it's not too extensive, we'll interlibrary loan an exact copy, we'll make replacement pages, and we'll tip them back into into the book. But if someone has really heavily vandalized a book, and you're talking about a lot of time and effort, the next step would be to try to buy a replacement if that's available. That's good to know. I will just preface that if there are people listening that have vandalized books, it does cost money to replace them, and it does cost time to, to fix these things as well. So please, please, please do not do this. Please <laughs> these things well, are our books. I mean, and that's if they can be fixed, because if somebody takes something and we're not able to find a suitable replacement, that really takes away from, from future users. We're not having the same degree of vandalism in our journals, at least I don't think so, that we used to have because now everyone has cameras in their phone. True. So if there's an article, let's say it's 10 pages long, they don't have to pay to use a photocopier. They don't have to lug it down to the basement and slap it around on a big machine. They just stand there and take pictures of the article instead of slashing it out. And they, they would slash it out, I think, because they, they didn't want to pay to make the copies. You bring up copiers, and people, I do see students taking pictures a lot more often now, which is great. But if you are going to photocopy something, there's probably a right and a wrong way to do it. And I think people unknowingly sometimes damage our books by the way that they photocopy. How would you suggest they go about that to limit the amount of damage they're doing to the book? Well, of course, try to handle the full weight and dimensions of the book while you're flipping it over because. That, more than the light in the heat, is what's really damaging. Yeah. And I know it's tempting to press things down on the platen so that, you know, you get the best quality copy, but some books don't handle that pressure very well, and it can, it can break the text block. So be wary of that as well. And I also think that sometimes people put things on the platen and they start to squirrel around a lot because they're trying to spend as little money as possible to get as many pages yeah. in as possible. <laughs> Just keep in mind that it's really the handling that's going to cause the most damage. 
not that light and that heat, which is what a lot of people might think. Yeah, I actually did not know that. I was always thought it always would have something to do with all that light because it does get really hot. Those machines sure does. Yeah. So, hey, there's that. Now you mentioned disaster preparedness and relief, and I know last year you did a uh, conference. What was it was last year you had you brought in a conference. Why is that so important? And have we had any such disasters here at the university libraries where we had to large scale do something? Well, knock on wood. <laughs> Sound effects. We haven't had a large event in a couple of years. They have, to date, the ones we've experienced have all been water. We haven't had fire. We haven't had an infestation. We haven't had flooding from, from weather-related events. They've been primarily from broken water lines. The worst one was soon after I started here, I'm going to guess in 2003, and we had broken sprinkler lines over a long weekend oh, man. that froze and broke, and it not only flooded the lower level of the science library, it also flooded the university bookstore and some of the offices on the ground garden level of the science library. Wow. And we had thousands of books impacted on that had to be pulled inventory, boxed, frozen, and then many of them were freezer and freeze-dried by a vendor. That sounds like a long process. It was awful being on a long weekend. It's When did people know that it was an issue? I got a call Saturday night, oh, and I spent all of Sunday and Monday here, and we didn't recognize the extent of the problem until we really started to dig into the stacks, but on Tuesday, when everyone returned to work, we were able to rally with the circulation department and other staff and faculty to, to, to crawl all over these high-density stack areas and pull the books that were, that were impacted on. Were we able to salvage just about everything that was impacted or no, were there things lost? We, we lost a lot of our really big, thick books that got soaked right to the middle. We didn't have very good luck getting them dried out in time. What is the optimum response time for a lot of these big events? Oh, you have 24 to 48 hours, depending on the temperature. After 48 hours, the secondary disaster is starting to get mold. And once mm -hmm. you get mold, then the book is probably going to be a loss. That's a shame. <laughs> I know that we sometimes get books that are checked out come back that have water damage. And a lot of times they've had them for so how long that there's not much we can do at that point once they dry, right? Yeah, we always hope the patron, you know, well, I mean, it's not just water, and we often want to know <laughs> what kind of water. <laughs> is it potty water, or is it, you know, garden hose water? Sort of makes a difference to us. <laughs> but if the student gets it back to us quickly, then the chances of recovery are probably 100%. Yeah, so don't, if you, the bottom line is, if you spill something on a book, <laughs> Don't sit on getting it back to us. We'd rather you bring it back as soon as you can so we can do something about it, right, instead of them just holding on to it and being afraid of you know, getting charged or whatever for any damages. Yeah, we, we normally wouldn't charge anything if we can just dry it out and reshape it here in the lab. There wouldn't be any charge. So bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> we can help. What are some of the things that go into creating a disaster plan? Are there kits that are prepared for folks? 
Well, right now, all three libraries, so that's the Dewey Library, the University Library, and the Science Library, there are, we call them disaster kits, located in key points throughout the building so that staff have quick access to things like plastic sheeting and scissors and clips mm -hmm. to cover stacks if there's water coming from the ceiling, paper towels, that sort of thing. We have an emergency plan that we try to keep updated and we work with others in the libraries to make sure that especially the contact information yeah. is up to date. This year, well, 2018, we updated the plan and we had a graduate student from the MSIS program do most of the, the updating. So she made sure all the links were correct. She contacted all the vendors. She made sure that the information we had was up to date and she did a great job and she learned a lot. That's wonderful. Now, if a we mentioned students too before, it's a quick segue. How does one, as a student, get to go up and join you guys in preservation? Well, most of the time it's word of mouth. Mm -hmm. We have almost every year, for the last couple of years, we've had interns. So sure. we have interns coming from the MSIS program. We sponsored a student from the undergraduate art history that was interested in conservation, so that was a paid internship. The others we have said, well, we've got positions available. We let faculty on campus know, like in the art history program, at, or we've had students come from anthropology, and they'll come over if we've got an opening. A lot of the students just introduce themselves. So we want to know what's your interest. So we are looking, I mean, we've had students with all kinds of wonderful backgrounds, yeah. but a lot of the times it's not their long-term goal, but they love doing hands-on work. Exactly, and there's a lot of it, so. That is mostly hands-on work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but we've even had students who've like never handled a pair of scissors before. And they've learned, but they and they've come to really love the work. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting. You are having a hand in history. Books are, well, anything, wh whether it be books or whatever's coming in, you know, is really a piece of our university history and the world history. Now, I'm going to go back to disaster stuff because I find it fascinating. Okay. I think our our listeners will too, especially with a lot of current events with natural disasters just being a part of what's happening over the past couple of years, whether it be the wildfires in California or the hurricanes we have. And we talked a bit about water, but what about pests and fire? How do we go about preserving materials that have been through that? Well, we have luckily not had too many pest problems. We've had some books returned to us with bed bugs over oh, the geez. years. <laughs> so staff training was really important then to get everybody educated and, and understanding and prepared to, to do their part to look for problems. We've had mice in the building, including mice that students let loose in the library. Oh, they were little white no. lab rats. <laughs> but we've never had any kind of infestation, but it's very possible we could. Books are brought into someone's home that maybe has cockroaches and maybe they bring them all back and they've all got cockroaches i know this is making everybody get the creepy crawlies <laughs> but trust me everybody we really have any problems i don't know that we are a high fire risk in our newer buildings the science library for example is sprinkler protected but everything is up to code with fire detection and response capability so 
So I don't really feel that that we're at as high a risk as maybe other organizations in the area located along rivers that could flood. Sure. And in upstate New York, flooding from natural disasters has been, of course, Sandy and Irene, and those have been our biggest problems. So you mentioned earlier about running conferences. So we ran a conference with the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity on emergency response. And we have another one coming up on May 21st here in the Standish Room in the Science Library, and it's called After the Big One. And this is about having a big emergency. And I think that's the part of the plan that people often don't write well because they've never experienced it. So what do you really do when something big and and area-wide happens? Who do you contact? What kinds of support mechanisms are available? So we have, this is in cooperation with the Alliance for Response Capital Region, which I serve on the steering committee for and the New York State Library and the Capital District Library Council. So keep an eye open for that. There had been posts on various listservs, and you can contact me if you'd like to know more. If you're a student at the university, you can attend for free. You just need to email me. I love plugs for conferences. Yes, it's gonna be, it's gonna be good. We have speakers coming in from Delaware County who actually responded to several floods and rebuilt applying for FEMA funding, for example. So it's going to be, and we have a speaker, our keynote is coming up from Columbia University, and they had a huge mold outbreak. So if you really want to know what you do when it's really big, rather than preventing it, if you have to recover, then I think this would be very helpful for you. Yeah, talking to the people that have actually lived through it is always And it will help you with your disaster plan. That, That part of your plan will be better. Exactly. Now, is that happening during Preservation Week? Because I know that's during the month of April. No, I'm sorry. It's not. We had to find a time that would work with all our speakers. Uh, Missed opportunity. Yes. Speaking of Preservation Week, what are some of the activities that go, go on? What's the purpose of it? Well, Preservation Week is about reaching out to the public from the libraries to teach the public about the importance of preservation. So over the years, I've been involved quite heavily on the Amer- with the American Library Association getting this organized. And so as preservation specialists, we worked very hard to prepare toolkits for the libraries. And the libraries use those tools to reach out to their community to educate them about the importance of protecting collections and information and data and photographs and anything else that we want to have for future generations. Which is wonderful. And talking a lot about books and I think a lot of people when they think preservation and preserving things they think books and print materials but you do bring up a good point that it's more than just books it's the the data side of things and whatnot how does preservation deal with the more digital side of things now well we've come a long way I would I would say that 10 years ago we didn't feel that we knew what what preservation of digital materials was really going to mean, and we weren't confident that we could do it yet. But now I think with some formats in particular, we're very comfortable with it. We were forced into it with audio material because magnetic media was no longer available. So digitization has become the preservation option of choice. It really has to do with making sure that you reformat or copy at the highest possible standards 
at the highest levels of quality and that you are diligent through the life of those of those data to make sure that they're not compromised. So you do checksums and you you know you run diagnostics and you just make sure that your digital repository wherever you're keeping your information that you're not it's not you're not losing bits over time. And that's the more prevalent preservation we're going to see now because we are living in a digital society. So there's going to be more and more probably these jobs focused on just the digital side of things, I would guess. Absolutely. And I'm really excited the last number of years, the whole idea of personal archiving has been very interesting to me. Maybe the listeners would like to explore this in a little more depth, but, you know, we think about family collections and, you know, family collections become part of communities and sometimes those community collections end up being in museums. It's just amazing what people collect and what they've what they've done in their lifetimes. But we all are living a digital life in to some degree and being able to protect what you are creating online and what you're creating with your personal digital con- content, you don't want to lose that. So we want to reach out more to individuals to get people to start to think about how they're going to protect and keep the, the stuff that they've created as an individual. Yeah, and there's a lot to think about there too because you also probably get into um, things that you've created that you've given to third parties, like things you put on Instagram or Twitter, Facebook. Like a lot of people now will just upload their photos straight to Facebook and then that's where they are. So what happens? You know, are you backing that up somewhere? Like, you know, how do you do that? Well, I think that what we're trying to get people to understand is that if you were to become incapacitated or maybe you pop off, people won't be able to access your online your online content so the recommendation is to make sure that someone close to you someone that you trust you know has your access information so they can go in and archive that content and even keep it keep it available that's true and as morbid as this sounds I know Facebook does have a feature where you can have someone be like your administrator to change it over to a in memory of page. Yes. Hopefully nobody has to do that anytime soon with any of your loved ones, but it is an option. You should have a contingency plan <laughs> for these things. But who knows how long Facebook will be around for. We don't know. <laughs> right. Yes, only old people use Facebook now, right? <laughs> We're always on some <laughs> new, new social platform. So I figure we could kind of wrap up our discussion about preservation by have, having you tell us maybe the most interesting thing that you found and had to preserve, whether it be a collection item or a state that you found something in. Well, here at the University at Albany, I think the most interesting project was a whole bunch of really big, really dirty, really brittle old blueprints of the Schuyler Building that facilities management was able to get from the Albany County Hall of Records. And our job was to open them. And they were very tightly rolled and they had, you know, like spider webs in them and they were really filthy, but we found a way to, to humidify and press and open up these really big blueprints and then we were able to have them photographed to see if they were going to be of any use for the Schuyler building renovations. That's really cool. Do you know where they were storing them prior to them coming to you? Oh, I don't want to know. <laughs> it would upset me terribly. But they're safe now. They're in special collections. Oh, that's wonderful. 
if you could say anything to our listeners about preservation and speaking to them directly, what would you say? Don't fix the books. <laughs> Don't worry about it. If sometimes pages fall out, sometimes covers get torn, sometimes you drop things and they get a little mangled. It's okay. I'll take care of it. There's nothing for you to worry about. We don't want anybody fixing things that we have to unfix. And that includes the librarians out there. Yeah, don't throw tape on. Yeah, don't pages. tape it up. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen things where tape has yellowed and don't, starts peeling. If you, if you get chicken soup on it, don't try to clean it up. Just get it over to me. I'll do it. There you have it. I'm happy it. to do it. It's my job. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Karen. I think we're out of time. Uh, before you leave us though uh, we always ask our guests what they've been reading lately so whether it be for work or pleasure anything interesting yes I I read the New York Times on a daily basis and they always have a weekly reading list what we're reading and it's a it's a it's a combo there'll be fiction nonfiction books about politics books about race books about war of course I'm always looking for novels and they had one recently by Eleanor Lipman, and the title of the book was called Good Riddance. Oh, gee. <laughs> and I think what I really enjoyed about the book, although the storyline seemed kind of strange, what I liked in the main character is she said the things that she knows she shouldn't say. She says them anyway. <laughs> and it kind of sucks you in because she has to live with the consequences. So if you want not exactly like light reading, but if you want a good read that take you through the weekend, I highly recommend it. So read that. We do not have that in our collection. However, you can utilize our interlibrary loan system to get that book for yourself. That's what I did. There you go. I feel shamed because I haven't finished the book that I was reading since last time we had an episode. So it's not because it's a bad book. It's just because I haven't had time. So Vicious by Victoria Schwab. Go ahead and start reading it if you finish. But for our next episode... Uh, let me know via so our social channels. <laughs> but I promise I will finish it hopefully before May when you hear from me again. All right, well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank our guest Karen again for joining us for this episode of Librarians with Lattes. And I'd like to thank our listeners for continuing to tune in each month. And finally, if you haven't been to a library in a while, what are you waiting for? We hope to see you soon. <laughs>